This is Big Talk, Michael Glab here. My guest this week in the studio, an old friend of the show. He's been on, gee, I think this is your third appearance, Douglas Wissing, the author, the journalist, the war correspondent, this man. Always good to be with you, Mike. Thanks so much for being with us. The last time we had you on, you were talking about working on a book about a guy who was essentially the guts of the CIA, the man who uh, did the work. His name, Benjamin C. Evans. The new book just came out, Gentlemen in the Shadows, Benjamin C. Evans and the Central Intelligence Agency. That came out just a couple of weeks ago, published by the Indiana Historical Society Press, Benjamin C. Evans, an Indiana boy. He was a man who became one of those figures in Washington that are the most powerful people you've never heard of. Right. The people that run those massive departments and agencies just below the political appointees. We think of the directors of the CIA. We think of the Secretary of State. But the people who really run it are one level down. They don't move. They stay there. And they're the ones that run the agencies. They're civil servants, right? They're civil servants. So that means they they can't be fired for political reasons by whichever president comes into office. Uh, Maybe accepting the current one. (laughs) Well, well, you know, that brings me to my first question. The, The current president, he villainizes and demonizes both the nation's intelligence agencies, and the so-called deep state. And this fellow, Benjamin C. Evans, he's of the Central Intelligence Agency, or was, and he could be described as a deep state guy. I don't think he'd be on the current president's Christmas card list. He was definitely a member of the deep state, particularly given the connections between America's upper class the Ivy League and the intelligence agencies going back to the OSS from during the World War II period. Um, and the CIA evolved from that. He was definitely part of that group. The deep state does exist. Benjamin Evans would have been part of it. But we're not using deep state as a pejorative right now. We're saying these are the people who are in power. They're entrenched. They know their jobs. They, they teach all the new people how to do things. Yeah, Benjamin Evans was the guy who would, he, he was the executive secretary of the CIA from about 1968 till when he retired in 81. He'd been a clandestine officer before that. He had run a major CIA front organization, the Asia, uh, the Asia Foundation for five years. And then he was kicked upstairs to the seventh floor, to the, the executive suite. His office, the executive secretariat office, was across the street across the hall Mm -hmm. from the director of the CIA. He was in place through four presidential administrations and seven directors of the CIA, directors of central intelligence. He could adapt. He was very adaptable, very smooth, very suave guy. He was in the room for everything from... You know, I, I it, it's difficult, of course, the CIA doesn't like to share much, but, you know, it, just the, the things that I could find 
it was obvious he knew everything and he was involved with everything and i could i could track various things like watergate like when when all that happened with watergate nixon was desperately trying to get the cia engaged in this cover-up and they understood if they did it would be the end of the cia so they they had to deftly dodge that as nixon was trying to get them engaged with it and at the time that was going on it got kicked into the executive secretariat like handle this at the time that ben evans was handling it he had a nephew who later became a very powerful corporate attorney in indianapolis at the time was a young guy had come out to washington as a good republican to work for the committee to reelect the president creep as we yeah, knew it as we fondly recall so he was working for nixon's committee to reelect the president which of course had dispatched the plumbers to watergate at the same time, and was living in the basement apartment at the, the family mansion in northwest Washington, at the same time, his uncle was upstairs knowing everything that was going on and trying to like keep the CIA from getting hammered with the repercussions of Watergate. He went to West Point. That's right. And in the West Point in memoriam page on Ben Evans, uh, here's what they write. Ben carried the chief administrative responsibility for the CIA's interaction with the White House, the Cabinet, and other departments and agencies. His position called for skill, experience, judgment, diplomacy, firmness, and discretion. These were all characteristics Ben had in abundance. What a guy, huh? He he really... Um was the ultimate organization man. He knew how to get things done. He, he thought in giant um, parameters that allowed him to organize administrative tasks of staggering proportions. Would reporters try to get to him? No. Because no, he couldn't be got to? He couldn't be gotten to. He would brush him off, in other words. If someone could get to him, boy, that would be... That would be great source. Huh? It, it, it's almost incomprehensible right. to imagine him ever being anything but totally discreet. Impossible. You know, it's just not, that doesn't fit the picture. He was uh, born and raised in Crawfordsville. He, he grew up in a wealthy family in Crawfordsville. Uh, he was born in 1924. So they they became very prosperous because they were bankers that financed farmland and there was enormous booms for farm uh farms and farmland and their their basic area where they financed farms were in indiana and ohio so really good soil crawfordsville has that extraordinary soil the tips mm-hmm. and till soil that all went fine until the depression ah and so they, the family was also then involved with all the foreclosures, all the farm sales, all those tragic things that we oh, no. we know from uh, WPA photos, yeah, things of that nature. The family was completely involved in that to the point where, in, according to family lore, they had to foreclose on somebody's mother's, uh, one of the Evans family's relatives. Uh-oh. You know, they were like hardcore yeah uh but they're they're a very wealthy family and even during the depression when ben evans was growing up as a young young man they still had enough money to send him to culver for summer for summer schools and that was his first um initiation into a military life and into Ah. the into 
that way of being and discipline and order and that kind of stuff. And that, that he became a, a captain in the black horse troop that people may know of the black horse troop, which is a famous equestrian troop that's right. connected to Culver. And he, you know, so he was, a, he, he excelled at that. He liked it. He liked the sense of order. And that I think led him then to West Point. Well, he spent a year at Wabash College mm-hmm. and then went to West Point. He graduated with the class of 1946. Uh, interesting story. Uh, apparently, uh, they described him, the, the West Point people described him as a, such a nice guy that sometimes his roommates picked on him. And there was a story about him being locked out of the room. They locked him out of the room just before inspection. And, of course, you have to be at your station and all this. And they locked him out. And uh, they thought this was great fun. And right. he w- everyone liked Ben Evans. I did not right. find one person who had one bad thing to say about Ben Evans and you know, all the interviews that I did. They weren't doing this to hurt him. No, they just thought it was funny, and they thought he'd get flustered. He very calmly went across the hall where it was a point where West Point was very powerful in football. Yeah. And he he asked one of his friends, who happened to be a football player, if he could help him out. And so he calmly went across the hallway and smashed in the door, (laughs) put his hand out and said, go right in. (laughs) And because, you know, and Ben Evans walked in, took his position right before the inspector came because he knew the guy who was in charge of the room would have to answer for the door being smashed. Right. (laughs) He won. He didn't get ruffled. (laughs) Hey, after West Point, he went to Japan serving with the United States Army. That's right. At that time, the United States Army was occupying Japan. That's right. They were, that was when MacArthur was essentially running Japan as, as a czar. And, and, of course, that was during the Western attempt to instill democratic values into right. Japan, where previously there had been a god king. And yes. that, was, that was the way it was. That was a, one of a, a signal victory in our attempts to change other cultures. And Ben Evans was really part of that. He was part of what became known as, as psychological warfare, psychological operations. And he was involved in it. I mean, you know, some of the things that came out, of course, we completely changed their educational system. That was one of the first things we did to the point where we made the students take – they. The books were highly valued in Japan, their uh-huh. school books. And they would have to go through and mark out sections that would glorify militarism or glorify uh, the great uh, industrial uh, groupings and whatnot. Yeah. And they would have to go through and mark it out. And, that, and that's still this, to that generation of Japanese, is one of the most traumatic things that happened. Really? Because it was, not only were they defacing a school book that they were inculcated into really being careful with yeah it was wiping out their own traditions and their own history yeah and and um ben evans was part of all that i mean but to the point where we had through japan polka dancing classes because we were (laughs) you know baseball you know i mean various things he served as the aide-de-camp to uh, brigadier general eugene l harrison in japan who somehow became part of his family. Yeah, Harrison Harrison was a really big deal intelligence officer in the European theater and had been part of some very important things in that final period of the war relating to intelligence. 
And then after the war, he was given control of essentially southern Japan, the area around Kyoto. So he was he was living like a doge. He was living in a vast mansion that was oh. right across the imperial palace. He had brought his his new wife over there, who had two children. Uh huh. Because he, his wife was a widow. Yeah. Her husband had also been an intelligence officer, also from West Point, and had been killed during the Normandy invasion. Huh. That was after she had two children, and so. Uh, Harrison was in his 40s at this time and was considered a very eligible bachelor. He was one of those guys in Washington that, you know, carried himself very well, was a perfect uh, escort, was, you know, someone who was, who was uh, very polished. And Wore the formal uniform well, eh? That's exactly right. And And so they married pretty quickly. She came... And his wife came from old money in Washington, what uh-huh. old aristocracy. And the, the term that they use for themselves, which I had never heard, is cave dwellers. Oh. If you're part of old Washington aristocracy, you call yourself a cave dweller. She was a cave dweller. So her, her family had been brewers at, from the 1850s, 60s on when America had so many German immigrants. If you owned a brewery, you became very rich, yeah, very yeah. well-to-do. And they did. They became very rich. At one point, they were the largest private property owner in Washington, D.C. They own, and they still do. The family is still, they, they own 1,100 acres of Virginia hunt country Boy. property where it's like every house is a mansion. They own 1,100. They own, man, I, I drove around with his widow at one point, she was just driving around Northwest Washington there amidst all the embassies and stuff. She'd say, oh, yeah, that's a family. You know, it was like that mansion, that mansion, that mansion. They were all like I family. know this one, that yeah, one, and that yeah, one. Yeah, you know, there's a, there's a place on DuPont Circle called the Brewer's Mansion. That's where, that was the family house. That was, huh. that was her grandfather's house. The general married well, General Harrison. So Ben, ben Evans became the aide-de-camp to Harrison, yeah. who's married to... The brewer's daughter. Yeah. And she had it. And essentially, Ben Evans and the stepdaughter now. Right. Fell in love. Did we follow that? Jan King Evans is the woman. They, they fell in love. She was much younger. They, oh. were, they were incredibly chaste. I mean, oh. he, was, he was an Eagle Scout. <laughs> he was absolutely an Eagle Scout. They were like... You're saying really? You're not mm-hmm. using that as a, as no, he, a he, Well, he was an Eagle Scout... Really, and he was an Eagle Scout. Really, <laughs> and uh, they they had a very chaste romance, and eventually married after she'd gone to college for one year because that was the deal. And then, next thing you know, Ben Evans gets transferred to Washington D.C. The general knew that he needed, if you were going to be a general, you needed to spend time in Washington D.C. That's the seat of all the power. So. He was very impressed with Ben Evans. This is long before they married. Mm -hmm. He was considered quite a comer. So the general arranged for him to take a posting in Washington. Sure enough, that worked very well. And then Ben went on to become involved with intelligence, uh, served during the Korean War, got a master's at Columbia University in psychological warfare. Did he not also go to Korea? He was in Korea for a time, so he part of his posting was in Japan during uh, during the early part of the war, and then later 
spent one term in one rotation in uh, Korea. Apparently, he came up with an interesting idea, a $250,000 reward. The U.S. was always trying to get a hold of MiGs, the the Soviet plane. And so they, being Americans, we thought we could buy one. (laughs) And so Ben Evans, being a good capitalist thinker, (laughs) said, well, let's just, you know, offer $250,000 to any Soviet, any, any Korean North Korean pilot yeah. who will land a MiG and let us have it. In our friendly territory. That's right. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, hey, a, a lot of CIA people do talk about using money to turn people. And when people are in hot water financially, it can work. It's not just the CIA. We think we can <laughs> buy everything. Well, yeah. That, I mean, you know. Hey, we're yeah, Americans. When when I was, yeah, I don't want to switch over to Afghanistan, but, you know, <laughs> like, I, they... The military would say, "Well, we're going to pay, we're going to pay these guys ten dollars a day because, you know, the the Taliban will only pay them eight dollars a day. I can't even remember what it was, and it was like, and that'll switch their that, loyalty. That'll switch, and I'd say, so like, what do you make? You're a major. You're here in the war zone, and yeah, you know, you're making I don't know with combat pay hundred grand something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So if the Taliban offer you one twenty five, you're going to go over." <laughs> And they'd look at me like I was crazy, of course, but that was essentially what we were offering. And the reason you know that is because you spent uh, three terms embedded with National Guard units in Afghanistan. Yeah, and and other units, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Basically, counterinsurgency. Right, right. And we talked about that on our previous uh, uh, visits here on Big Talk. But we deflected, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, that's what we do. It's a conversation. What is the CIA? What is it purported to be? What is it today? I mean, it's a hydra-headed thing today. Give me some of those heads. Oh, my goodness. We're, suppo- <laughs> we're supposed to be... Initially, we were supposed to be looking at both open source and classified documentation, analyzing the intelligence and making a uh, recommendations and summaries of intelligence to decision-makers. Very, very early in the CIA's development, operations, clandestine operations, took a much bigger role in uh, in the the CIA's work. Instead of just observing and understanding, they were doing. They were. They were doing, and that that has become what they have been mainly known for from very early. Operations took over especially after those uh, 1970s-era congressional hearings about some of the CIA's more controversial activities. The family jewels stuff, I think you're probably talking about that that scandal. Well, from from the, the beginning, operations was a big part of what the CIA did, and, and in terms of budgets, and, and Ben Evans was part of that. that. Early in his career, he joined the CIA in 1957 after a career in military intelligence, and in 57, he joined the CIA with the assistance of General Harrison, who was yep. on the commission that actually formed the CIA. The, pre- the President Truman had reached out to him and put him on, put General Harrison on the commission that organized the CIA initially. So Ben Evans was in the right place at the right time. He a was, number yeah, of times. He was, I mean, and, and you know, the connection between the upper class and, and the, um, the CIA, the, his widow, who I became friends with, 
she described, yeah, it was in about 1957, and General Harrison decided that Ben really should be in the CIA, and so he organized a dinner party with, you know, Colonel Gallagher, who ran this and that, <laughs> and well, and, you know, like, the people that are among the most shadowy people in the CIA, they were at that dinner party. <laughs> and Ben Evans became part of the CIA. And well, so, 50, so 57, yeah. he joined the CIA. And in 59, he was sent to Havana. Uh-huh. Now, this is just a few months after Castro took power. Castro took power January 1, 1959. So in 1959... They sent Ben Evans over as a covert officer. Uh-huh. He was uh, he was sent over as the second secretary of uh, you know the sec- you know it's it's kind of a classic um, post that's ostensibly under the State Department, but everybody knows it's a CIA post. Right. And he went over and started running a string of of agents, essentially counter revolutionary Cuban agents. And I was lucky enough to interview uh, one of them who had become a great friend of, of the, the Evans. And uh, he'd come from a wealthy family. Most of those people came from the upper class of, huh. of, of the Cuban society. Oscar Echeverria is in his late 80s now and you know, had extraordinary memories of what went on. So it, it's, that was what he did for a while. And then... And then Things got so hot, the CIA got busted a couple of times, some of the agents got incarcerated. It was pretty obvious that that the Cuban intelligence services were getting very close to the whole string of people. So they needed to, first first he had to get his family out Uh because his wife and his young daughter was there and his wife was pregnant with their second daughter. Because for a period of time we had semi-normal relations, diplomatic relations with Cuba. Well, we, we thought we could buy Castro off. Right. It was a very... Hey, we're Americans. We're Americans. We can, <laughs> he can be bought. Everybody can be bought. Uh, and the they didn't understand the revolutionary fervor, and they didn't understand Castro's ability to lead that fervor, his popularity. Um, and the CIA, for a long time, thought he was somebody they could deal with. Uh-huh. Because, of course, we owned... Cuba at that point. We had, after the war, we had taken over the Cuban economy. We owned yeah. a major part of the Cuban economy and with all the inequality that comes with that. And so Castro had a fertile field to work in as a revolutionary. So, um, but the economy was so fragile and so dependent on the United States Eisenhower and the CIA people thought that they could work with Castro initially. Right. And there was some dissension. And Evans learned very early, and I think he learned from his friend uh, Oscar Echeverria, that Castro really wasn't somebody that could, could deal with it. And, and I think he understood earlier than most people, there was a period when Castro wasn't a declared communist. Right. And... It appears from everything I can piece together, Evans understood very early that he was much more doctrinaire than that, and things were going to go that way. Yeah. And as it turns out, he was right in that particular instance. And so then you started having the sanctions, and you started having the you know Castro nationalizing more and more and more of the American interests, which of course drove 
the American capitalist crazy. I, I saw an anecdote that uh, has his daughter, Carla, carrying around a Castro doll through their house yeah. while he's leading this secret group of, of agents. Yeah, well, they're, they're, they, had, <laughs> they had a very nice uh, villa in, in Havana in one of the nicest neighborhoods in Havana. And uh, his daughter, the story that was told to me both by Carla and by uh, Jan Evans, the widow, was that Carla was a little girl. She was about two. Yeah. And she saw this Castro doll. And it was a big... <laughs> the Castro doll was as big as she was. And I've seen I've seen this Castro doll. <laughs> and it's like... It's got... He's in a military uniform. He's got a beard. He's got a, you know, military... That cap that he wore. She loved her Castro doll. <laughs> and she would drag it around everywhere as her dad was running the uh, anti-Castro agents. You know, part of what uh, the Indiana Historical Society says about the book is that it's not just a story about Evans. It's a story about CIA families and the prices they pay for their services. What price did Evans' family pay? Or what prices did they pay? Well, I think initially, the one of the things that intrigued me was you have a father who is a, a powerful figure, who goes off to work, who clearly does important things, but he never comes home and says, how'd your day go? Uh, or can never talk about how his day went. Right. There's total silence yeah. about that discretion. <laughs> and, and that intrigued me. And what was the price? And, and as I started investigating how that works, that kind of um, a certain kind of emotional distance you have to keep. You have to stay under control all the time. Yeah. And he was a, he he was clearly a very loving person with his family. He was a, a wonderful family man. I mean, he's held in such high regard. But everything had to be kept very very tight. And so those walls, those kind of you can't ask the question. Jan Evans would say, "I was a good CIA wife." I never ask him. <laughs> and she'd grown up as an in intelligence family. Right. She knew the drill. So she knew the game. She knew the drill. And and she said, oh, I'm also a very curious person. And sometimes I would ask Ben, well, Ben, what about that? And he would say, Jan, is that on a need-to-know basis? <laughs> you know, I'm going to guess that when you took this work on, it, it, you would learn that it didn't matter that the guy was dead already because he probably wasn't going to give you much information. No. And the other thing I learned is that if you are in the CIA, even if you're retired, even if you're retired for 20 years, 30 years, you're going to lie. <laughs> so I would be talking to these CIA people, officers, and they would say something to me. And I would be look, I'd be sitting there with documentation, knowing like that's an absolute lie. Like it's just a habit, you know. Like, like that's what you do. The book is "Gentlemen in the Shadows: Benjamin C. Evans and the Central Intelligence Agency." Ben Evans, an Indiana boy, actually was the guy who ran things, more or less. That's written by Douglas Wissing. It was released by Indiana Historical Society Press. Just came out a couple of weeks ago. Doug, thanks for being on Big Talk. Thank you, Michael.